Welcome to Building LA, a podcast about the buildings and projects shaping the future of Los Angeles, hosted by me, Sam Pepper. I'm a licensed architect, developer, and project manager specializing in large, complex projects. And as you can probably tell, I'm not a lifelong Angelino. I moved here in 2019, and I'm just fascinated and very curious about the projects shaping this city, and I'd like to learn more. Each episode of Building LA features conversations with the industry leaders driving those projects forward. We talk about what inspires them, the stories behind these impactful projects, and discuss what continues to excite us all about working in design, architecture, and real estate in Los Angeles. Please subscribe to Building LA on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast platform. And if you have a minute, please write us a review. We really appreciate it, and we'd like to hear from you. Now, on to the episode. The phrase, leave something better than you found it, is one that everyone involved in the real estate industry should employ when taking on a project. Of course, what is better is almost always subjective, influenced by everyone's individual unique circumstances and perspective. But in some cases, a project is completed that unquestionably embodies that phrase and the principle behind it. One of those projects is the subject of today's episode on Building LA, the California State LA Student Services Building. My guest, James Woolham, a partner at ZGF Architects and a fellow of the AIA, was the design lead for the project. James and I have known each other almost the entire time I have lived in Los Angeles, and we've had the opportunity of working together too, so it was great to have him on the show. Before ZGF was hired as the architect, the building had been abandoned for several years, unsafe due to damage from the 1994 Northridge earthquake, and as a result, an unwelcome blight on the Cal State campus. As we will discuss in the episode, ZGF actually saw an opportunity with this project that was far beyond what the university had originally hired them for. Since the renovation was completed in 2021, the building has been transformed from being unusable to becoming, in many ways, the heart of the entire campus both providing critical services to a student population whenever they need support, as well as housing the office of the university president and senior staff. The fact that the students and president occupy the same building speaks volumes to the school's priorities and mission, which by the way is backed up by the data. The university ranks fourth in the most diverse faculty in the nation, 70% of students are first-generation college students, and it is a Hispanic-serving institution as defined by the US Department of Education. Having everyone under one roof is just a great symbol of the university's spirit. Prior to recording the podcast, James was actually kind enough to meet me at the project early on a weekday morning and give me a tour. Upon approach, the building makes a striking impression on the college campus. Partly, this is just the setting. Sitting at the north end of a large open plaza, the building doesn't really compete with any adjacent buildings of similar scale. As a result, it feels quite grand and civic, and reminded me of some of the modernist civic buildings built around the world in the 1960s and 70s. The exterior system is particularly elegant, due primarily to the uniform and very orderly concrete brisolet, which is comprised of thin vertical concrete fins within a grid, set outside of the perimeter columns and glazing. The effect is not only very beautiful, but the depth of the perimeter design also greatly improves the energy efficiency of the building, due of course to the shade covering the glazing. If someone told you this was a class A office building, or even a boutique hotel, you'd probably believe them. 
As you'll hear in this episode, we talk about why ZGF and James are so proud of this project and why it is a great case study for adaptive reuse and sustainability in LA. Now, on to the episode. So, James, tell us a little bit about Cal State's original vision when they hired ZGF as their architect for the Cal State Student Services Building. Great question, because I don't know if if they knew what they were getting at the time that they hired us. So we were originally approached to look at this building as a temporary space, swing space for the administrative services of of the campus. And the idea was they would move into that building for a little while while another building was built for them and they would move out and this building was going to be demolished. That's a great premise. We didn't really accept it at the beginning. We challenged and we said, hey, what if you made this the kind of building that was so incredible, nobody wanted to move out of it, that it wasn't swing space, it was permanent space, that rather than spend the money and the time to build something, demolish it and build another thing, what if we took an approach that just said, look, let's make it great, use your money to build something else. This is a college campus. You probably need classroom space. You probably need lab space. There's all kinds of stuff that you could do with your time and your money other than build and demolish. So we toured this morning. When you go around the building, it is surprising that that wasn't their original vision because of how well the project turned out and how effortless it seems as a student services building. So in those conversations that that ZGF had with Cal State in the beginning, did it take a lot of effort to convince them of pursuing a direction that was actually not their original vision for the project? And can you just talk about how that conversation kind of played out? Sure. You know, these things don't happen easily. So we started with this pushback that I talked about, this challenge, like, hey, what if we think about this differently? The way we work as a design firm, it's very rarely, here's an idea. It's an idea because we just made it up. We come at this from a business case perspective. So in this case, the business case was, look, here's how you could use your money in a more effective way. The other business case was around building for sustainability. So the idea that the most sustainable building you can possibly build is the one that's already there, that you don't have to start from scratch. And so it was this kind of joint discussion about stewardship of the environment and stewardship of the resources of, you know, to be honest, this is a public institution. It's your money, it's my money, it's the taxpayers. So it was about stewardship of all resources across the board. Do you think that going forwards, that approach, now walking around campus this morning, a lot of those buildings are from a similar era, built between the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Do you think that that approach will be echoed on other projects on campus now that they have a template for maybe how they can do it going forwards? You know, from your lips to everyone's ears, I would love for this to be proof of concept Mm -hmm. that we can really do this kind of transformative design. I mean, you and I working on other projects together, Mm -hmm. we're we're involved in kind of this world of adaptive reuse renovation. It really is in some ways the future that we need to be embracing, especially in a city like Los Angeles, because to your point, sure, all these kind of of an era buildings on a campus, that's one campus. There are lots of buildings around Los Angeles that are kind of at their theoretical end of life, but I think we've proven Mm -hmm. that you can do a whole bunch of things at once, including giving another, what, 50 years Mm -hmm. of life to this building? That's like a really incredible story to be telling in Los Angeles. 
when we talk about sustainability, and obviously that's been, you know, continues to be and should be a major topic of conversation when we talk about architecture and talk about real estate, is the conversation moving towards how we minimize the use of carbon versus maybe pursuing a particular metric such as lead or well or any of those ones? Is, is that, do you feel like that conversation is moving towards just carbon? I feel like that conversation is moving. Carbon is one thing. The interesting thing about the certifications, the certifications tend to be the first wave. That in the beginning, we were talking about lead, and that's all anyone was talking about. I think a lot of design firms, and certainly we at ZGF, have moved past purely the idea of the certification. I think Fitwell, other certifications that we're seeing that are really current right now, I think they're the first wave, they're the first second wave that we're really looking at those things as highlighting a set of issues, highlighting a set of solutions, and ideally helping us grow past that. So certainly carbon is a huge issue right now. We think carbon will continue to be an issue. It'll be interesting to see where that dialogue goes in another couple of years, kind of where else we can continue to focus. It seems interesting, and I think just from the public perception of it, I think there's there's certainly a, a desire both from a developer standpoint, but also landlords and organizations such as Cal State, they want to be in line with the sustainable standards of today. It does feel like, and maybe this is just me personally, but it does feel like tracking carbon usage is a very holistic way of looking at a building because it does promote adaptive reuse. And in a city like Los Angeles and a campus like Cal State, where there are so many buildings out there that were built in this period of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, which are coming to sort of the end of their life and end of their mm -hmm. use, taking on and breathing new life into them with a creative perspective, such as what ZGF did at Cal State, seems like the right move and, and maybe should be the focus of the conversation potentially, instead of just tracking to the metrics of, of lead and, and fit well. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, I think we have a responsibility to to look really holistically about what the right set of choices are. And they're not going to be the same for every project, every client, mm -hmm. every program. They're not going to be right for every building. There, you know, in reality, there are probably buildings out there, probably lots of them, that don't have that next life story. But to me, as architects, and especially sitting in LA and kind of looking at what we're looking at in terms of climate challenges and economic challenges, I think we have a responsibility to think about all of this before we just say, well, you know, tear the thing down and, you know, let's start from scratch. I actually, over the last couple of years, have been reflecting on my own career. And once I thought about it and really looked at a series of projects, a whole bunch of stuff that I've done over the years is really about repositioning. And I never really thought of myself as that person. When you stand back, it's like, wow, I'm kind of proud of the fact that like a lot of this stuff was a reinvention. It, in some ways, it's harder and it takes a lot of convincing. And I don't know, somehow you stand back and you're like really proud of that. That makes total sense. I can see it being super rewarding. So we talked about the building, you know, now having a new life. Can you talk about a little bit about the history of the building and what it was used for initially and kind of maybe its first life? Yeah, sure. Uh, so first life, it was a science building. And for example, it had one of the first kind of an early linear accelerator in the basement of the building. So it was in its first life, 
kind of on the edge of technology, right? Like all of us, it got older. And unfortunately, it was built at a time that asbestos was used in the building. So by the time we came into it, there was already a robust remediation process happening. So the building was essentially taken down to columns, beams, and this interesting mid-century concrete design feature, this Brie Soleil. That's all we kept. And, you know, for a building that started as a science building, it was not in a great position to be a science building going forward just because of the way technology and lab building design has evolved. But it was really well suited as office space. Another aspect of the history of the building, which I thought was interesting, particularly in L.A., is the fact that it was affected by an earthquake. Yeah, definitely. What impact did that earthquake have on the building? Given the requirements of a student building on a campus, it was not suitable for student purposes. It literally was just sitting there for years underutilized. And it had had alterations over the years, but some of those alterations intended to make it more structurally sound were not necessarily helping it be as structurally sound as it needed to be. And then I shared with you when we toured that one of the funny things that we did is, okay, here's this eight-story plus basement building that's got some structural challenges. And part of what we're doing is making it stronger, making it more resilient. And yet, one of the things we really wanted to do was create connections from floor to floor, program to program, student to student. And how do you do that? You do that by cutting a big hole in the middle of the building in order to have all these interconnecting stairways. And so from the beginning, that was a little bit like, weirdly, let me make this building stronger by cutting a bunch of holes in it. And it actually turned out to be really smart thinking because in the end, reducing the the mass of the building actually helped the structural rigidity of the building. So it's a very kind of perverse thing that like, in order to make it stronger, we cut holes in it. Was it hard to convince Cal State of that as you're going through the design process? It it wasn't hard to convince them, but the, the harder thing was convincing them around the idea that these connections were important. Part of what this project did was it co-located people who had not been co-located in the past. So what that meant was strengthening connections of people who already work together. It also meant creating connection out of nothing for people who didn't used to work in the same building together. So this idea of community, connection, transparency was really like from the beginning, the big idea. So these atrium spaces very clearly do that. So again, the kind of, it was less like, why do you guys want to cut holes in the building? And it was more, yeah, you're right. That's that's probably the community that we're trying to build. That sounds like the right architecture for this thing. The diagram is so clear. And I think as an architect, I can read it so clearly, but I think a lot of people can too, that you have a student services building that is really a a beautiful box from the outside. And on the inside, you have all these kind of series of atriums creating this kind of vertical transparency through the building. And you have a mixture of student services for a wide variety of students that I'd love to get into. But you also have the office of the president there as well. And there's something really heartening about having everything under one roof where you have the boss of the entire university and then you have an 18-year-old kid who's trying to figure it out all in one place. There's both a reason you would go there in order to talk about someone about financial aid or a family issue potentially. But there's also all these lounge spaces that are dotted around the building where, as we saw today, 
kids are just hanging out. And was that part of the intention of the building as well to create a, a really a space where it could be used for a lot of different uses? I'm smiling at you as you as you go through that because thousand percent, you know, we always were like, yeah, it's going to be great to get all these departments in the same building. It's going to be great. This is a one-stop place for students to take care of all the issues that they have on campus. They need a parking permit. They need financial aid. They need to pay a bill. And then there was this idea that there were all of these spaces, right? And in the tension of bringing together a community of people who hadn't necessarily worked in the same building, there were some people that were more or less comfortable with the idea that students were all over the place, right? And every time we were talking about it, we were like, yeah, this is going to be great. There are going to be kids everywhere. They're going to love it. And then you get some people like, well, you know, I don't know about that. It, wor- it, it worked too well. It, it, it's really good. And I and I think the the feedback about the building has been really positive. On site, I shared with you, you know, some people were less used to this kind of open environment, less used to this level of transparency. So it's taken some growing pains. But yeah, the students love the building. That's fantastic. How did the relationship with Cal State begin? And moving forward, is it a relationship which has continued to be prosperous for both organizations? Yeah, sure. So here's a lesson to the young architects listening to your podcast relationships are incredibly important. So the contact at the university who initially said, hey, come talk to us about this project, her name is Barbara Queen. Barbara had been a client on a different Cal State University campus. She knew ZGF. She knew we were going to push them. We, she knew we were going to give them a great building. So there was a lot of trust from the beginning. That kind of is why we were able to go into the first meeting where they said, hey, we want to do this building and it's going to be a teardown and you're going to, you know, And we said, well, but you know, it's always really easy to have those conversations and challenge a paradigm when you have that relationship with someone. So absolutely, you know, Barb in particular continues to be a really great friend of ZGF and we're always looking for ways to work with clients over and over again. Can you talk a little bit about the consultant team that was on the project? Yeah. So I think just to say it takes a village to do a project like this. We did have a great structural engineer. Vladimir, I remember the day he was so excited when he told me, hey, you know, we've got these shear walls in the building and I know you want to cut holes in them and it's going to be great. I can give you six foot openings as long as you don't want too many of them. And I was like, Vlad, oh my God, that's incredible. Only I'm going to need a lot of them and I need them to be 12 feet. And initially he looked at me like I was crazy, but I'll tell you the openings in the building where they need to be are 10 feet wide and it works. And it took some fiber wrap. It took some additional concrete. It took some moves, but the design challenge was there. And as a structural engineer, Vlad met that. Other key consultants, you know, we were really pushing the mechanical system in this building. We wanted it to be incredibly energy efficient We ended up with a system of chilled beams that I showed you on site. The other really key consultant was Atelier 10, who worked with us to do all of the the high-level sustainability strategy. So they, for example, helped us do the calculations around visible light transmission. We really studied, for example, how much clear glass we could have without inducing too much glare, without having too much radiant So they really helped us dial in. They're also the ones who helped us in the end do the calculations around carbon. I see. When you're looking at the diagram of the building, 
and you just have the columns and the slabs, which must have looked fantastic, by the way. When you're asking, when you're working with the MEP engineer, what were the attributes you were trying to achieve with the mechanical design for a building such as this? Well, so one of the things that we were interested in doing was like many buildings of this time period, it had a whole bunch of huge air handlers on the roof. And we were interested in more of a floor by floor mechanical approach. So we actually have nothing on the roof of this building anymore. Every floor has a small air handler. Every floor has some clear area for outside air, some some louvers on the outside of the building. And we're pretty much dealing with mechanical systems level by level. What's great about that it reduces the need for shaft space in the building. It keeps the ducts very small, especially with a chilled beam system. It also means over time, let's say I need to do a renovation on one of these floors. Really easy to take that floor out of service and not affect the rest of the building. Really easy to change the airflow on one floor versus another. Let's say the you know, let's say it changes from office use to maybe some small classrooms or something. It's just a ton of flexibility over the life of the building. We're talking about a building that's getting a second chance. So all of those decisions are helping it have more second chances in the future. What are you most proud of with this building? When we were talking and about this podcast and deciding which project to, to look at, you suggest this one. And, and I think in walking it, it's clear to me, but I'm curious in your words, why you why you look at this as maybe a highlight of your totally career. okay so it's two things probably one is this was a project that was done with a relative economy of means there are some wood paneled walls there are some nice details but it's really paint drywall some really beautiful environmental graphics that were designed by our in-house team but it's just vinyl graphics on drywall this is not a luxurious project I think achieving a high level of design intention with an economy of means, I'm really proud of that. The other thing I'm really proud of, you know, you look around Los, I mean, this podcast is about LA. You look around Los Angeles and there are amazing examples of great design, things that people spent quite a bit of money on. We have colleagues in this city building beautiful private homes. There are people building beautiful hotels even places that are public high-end malls, for example, and there's nothing wrong with that. Those don't always feel accessible to everybody. So here we had this opportunity on a college campus. A lot of the students here are first-generation citizens, first-generation college students. Many of them have served in the military. Many of them come to campus with mobility issues. There's a high number of students with disabilities on this campus. These are not always the people that get access to good design. For me and for us, the kind of equitable distribution of access to really good design solutions, like I'm really proud of that. I think that's really special. And if people come to the building and they enjoy it and they're happy to be here, Maybe they don't know it's because we took the time to design the mural in the lobby a certain kind of way, but if they feel good about it, like that's a really great accomplishment. It is refreshing because when you walk to the, when you approach the outside of the building and you see the Briseley and you see the, you know, you have your kind of classic mid-century facade, but also very clean, very contemporary 
curtain wall system or or storefront system, I should say, you could be approaching a cultural building. Mm -hmm. You could be approaching something in the arts district in Los Angeles, but you're not. You're approaching a place where a kid is going to a counselor about their issues. At ZGF, what are the lessons from that building that have been applied to maybe other projects that ZGF as a company is, is working on right now? Well, I'll go backwards. So one of the things that we applied to this project from our other work, for example, in healthcare, the idea that in healthcare today, you very rarely, you know, you go to the exam room, but you don't always go to another room to get your blood pressure taken or another room to get your blood drawn or another room to get a shot or whatever. It's this idea that care comes to you. So we applied that idea here that rather than a student with two or three simple issues, having to run all over a building. And let's, okay, so I could be a first-time college student. I could be the first person in my family who's ever gone through these experiences. So I'm not asking my mom or my older sister for help, right? I got to figure this thing out. So the exact same thing as showing up at a hospital or a clinic with a sick child or an injury, right? How do you help people in times of stress? So the idea that you come into this building and on the ground floor, there's this thing that we called the one stop. If you could solve 90% of your issues in one place, isn't that great, right? So we applied that healthcare thinking to this building. Since going through this process in this building, we've been, of course, telling that story like I'm telling it now, and we're telling it to other kinds of clients. So it's less that we made it up on this project, but it's like a pay it forward, right? Here's one more example of how this thing works. How can we apply it here? And that's one of the ways we think about design, right? Our teams tend to be cross-trained. They don't only work on one kind of project. So if I've learned it here in a student services building, how do I apply that to an academic research building, a children's hospital, an airport, whatever the next thing is that we're working on. This is one of a few higher education buildings that ZGF has worked on and continues to work on. How do you structure your teams at ZGF? Do you have a studio set up in at ZGF where you have a series of folks who are dedicated to higher education and have a, a become experts in that field? Or do you set it up differently? For the most part, differently. We don't talk about an education studio or a healthcare studio or an aviation studio, for example. We do have in each one of those focus areas, we do have people who are experts. We have people who have chosen for their personal reasons that this is the kind of project that they work on. They function as thought leaders on projects, but by and large, the teams are made up strategically. This is an opportunity for this person to learn about this. This is a person who's had a lot of success doing this kind of project. Let's see what they do over here. So that cross-training is critical for us. And it's different than a lot of other firms. And probably for listeners who are in other firms, big firms, small firms, that's probably different than the way they're used to thinking about their career. So we're talking a little bit about CGF. How long have you been involved with CGF? And I think there's been there's been two two stints. Two stints. Yeah. So I spent about seven and a half, eight years in the office here in LA. I left the firm for nine years and I came back in 2015. So overall, I've had a 20 year relationship with the firm. I haven't been working here that whole time, but we kind of value 
that idea that like I left for a while, depending on who you talk to, it's either called my sabbatical or my extended vacation or whatever. But it's great. You go out, you learn things in other firms and you come back and, you know, you bring some different kind of knowledge. So we're kind of switching gears a little bit to move from the project to talk about you, James Willem. So I guess initially, why did you become an architect? Well, I guess like a lot of people, I was that kid who was always building things. There's actually no moment in my life where I was like, oh, architecture. Yes, that's what I'm going to do. It just one day it was time to think about that. And it's like, oh, yeah, of course. What else? It didn't happen like a lightning bolt. It happened like, well, that's obvious. And was there a particular aspect of architecture that you were interested in? Or when you were in your, you know, when you're starting off your career, was there a particular type of, you know, did you want to do high-end residential in the Hollywood Hills? Or was there some other aspect of architecture that you were interested in pursuing? Well, Sam, didn't we all think when we went to architecture school that we were going to be the big name on the door, the superstar, the person that everybody, you know, they knew your name and they were going to call you to do the thing, right? I'm nodding. I, I uh, Yeah, I think a lot of people think that. And what they don't teach you in school is that architecture, it's a team sport. No harm, no foul to the folks out there that are the names on the door that, you know, people call around the world to do incredible projects. We've got some of them here in Los Angeles. They do great work. For me, it's just so much more rewarding to work with a team Mm -hmm. on a project. Early in my career, sure, the ownership felt very personal. The older I get, it's more important to me that I'm helping the people around me. It's more important that I am giving them good opportunities and like letting them do their thing. I can easily look at somebody's idea now and say, oh, okay, maybe not how I would think about solving that problem, but I really like where you're going. Have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? Which is very different than that like single point of authorship Mm -hmm. kind of model that I think we all learned in architecture school. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's one of the issues of architecture school is that it does tend to educate a lot of people who then think they should be the name on the the door and there's a there's a stark difference there between what architecture school teaches you and then uh practice in the real world well i always tell students because i do spend a lot of time with students i love i love getting involved at architecture schools but the thing i almost always tell them is just so you know lesson from your uncle james architecture school teaches you essentially 0% of the skills that you need to know to actually be a practicing architect. You really have to get out in the business and you've got to learn it like that. Do you find yourself kind of falling into sort of mentor roles quite often? Sure. Both in academia and at ZGF? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think at this point in my life, that's my job. That that it really is about how do you, I mean, I said pay it forward earlier when I talked about the project. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like, how do you pay it forward? This is a, I mean, and you know this, this is a career path that it does take time to learn. It does take time to hone your craft. Mm -hmm. I think we all have a responsibility to share what we know. It doesn't mean everybody's going to want to learn what you know, or that they are going to learn it, but at least I think the willingness Mm -hmm. to share is really important. And I guess just, Going back, though, part of what this project for Cal State is addressing is, I think, addressing the problems of our time. 
the idea of climate change, the idea of using less to do more, the idea of equity in design, Mm -hmm. equitable access to good design. These are kind of the problems of our time. To me, the pay it forward is like, look, here's some things I've learned. Mm -hmm. How can we, how can we figure out how to do more with that? How can we figure out how to educate and grow the next generation of leaders in architecture, especially in a city like LA, where if let's face it, we have some tough problems to solve in the city. Mm-hmm. And I think just it kind of a similarity as well between Cal State and ZGF. I mean, in some ways you are both fostering an environment at ZGF where we're sitting right now, where young architects can come up, but then also with Cal State, you're very much fostering an environment there where people feel comfortable being vulnerable in that situation and whatever that might be. And there is an incredible amount of benefit to that. And I think architecture schools, I think, don't necessarily lean on that as much as they possibly should. I want to talk about just the client role in architecture. And and I know, James, you've worked with a huge number of clients uh, over your career, both at ZGF and, and Gensler. Can you talk a little bit more about the clientele of this project and maybe how that has influenced ZGF going forwards? I think the simplest way to talk about that is that we're really focused on clients who are trying to make a difference. From the very beginning of of the firm, we've talked about, I mean, in this way predates me, we've always been about building community. Bob Frasca, one of the founding partners, his mantra was, you always have to leave something better than you found it. How do we solve the problems of our time? How do we leave something better than we found it? And, you know, how do we not start designing until we understand the problem we're trying to solve? Mm -hmm. And I think those kinds of clients, they have a problem, they're trying to solve it. It could be their problem as an institution. I need a building that does this because I don't have one. Mm -hmm. For so many of our clients, it's bigger than that. So it's Craig Venter mapping the human genome. It's us designing buildings. I mean, we have a joke if you're, if we're, it's not even a joke, it's real. If we're working on an academic research building with a really top level researcher, we say to them, look, we're going to do this building for you, but you got to go win a Nobel prize. (laughs) We have multiple Nobel laureates in our buildings. I mean, did the building help them do Mm -hmm. this incredible thing? Yeah, maybe kind of, sort of, right? But it's this spirit of what are we trying to do? How are we doing it together? How is it about community? How Mm -hmm. is it about solving the problems of our time? Like I think of us as a very mission-driven organization and the clients that we work with the best are similar. Mm -hmm. They have a thing and they're trying to do it and they need something from us. So I can't personally make sick children well, but I can work on a children's hospital that really, really supports caregivers and families and patients toward improved healthcare outcomes. Like that's a real thing. Like that's what to me as architects, we should be thinking about doing. And probably I would, I would hazard a guess that's part of the reason you became an architect was to provide your service to folks such as Cal State or, or, or the medical industry. How can the industry improve itself to make sure that architecture firms such as ZGF, Genza, et cetera, are impacting those who don't have the means to 
work with top architects such as EGF? So that is a big question, but, big question. I, but, I, but I think it's interesting. So it's a couple of things. One of the things that I talked to you about earlier about Cal State is so many of these students, they're not coming from a background where everyone in their family went to college. You know, I mentioned somebody coming into the building who, you know, they need to, they need financial aid or they need something else. They don't have a resource to go ask for that help. But beyond that, a lot of the students at this campus, they're coming from historically, economically challenged communities and they're working really hard. Some of these students are working full-time jobs while they're in college. And I mean, it's a, it's, you know, they are striving. So I think part of it is we give them a great environment. Mm -hmm. We give them a place that feels good to them. I think people recognize the value of good design, even if they couldn't, they can't say that's an Eames chair and I like it because of this reason. Why? Mm -hmm. That's a kind of a, (laughs) that's a kind of nuanced and privileged reference. People know good things when they see it. Mm -hmm. So I think that's part of it. We have to make good environments for people. The other thing is, okay, so little James or little Sam, you know, we're, we're in our living rooms as kids and we're building things with Lego or Lincoln logs or whatever. There was an instinct to build. Somehow you and I translated that into let me go to architecture school. Mm -hmm. I think we have a responsibility to get out there and to talk to younger people, kids, middle school, high school, help them understand what architecture is, what design is. Because part of the way I think we change the profession is we get people into it who come from a point of view of, hey, this is the world I came from. I now understand how I can have this impact as a designer. Like the idea of getting getting people into this career, mm-hmm. this game that we're in, that are bringing a super diverse perspective. I mean, to me, that's one of the biggest challenges of the design profession right now, because you do tend to see a certain kind of person go mm-hmm. into this this field. We need to be in schools. We need to be in universities. We need to be talking to people from very diverse backgrounds to bring a very diverse POV on design to the future. Well, it's still one of the professions, and I put those as quotation marks, but it's incredibly hard to become an architect and quite frankly just requires substantial resources in order to make it happen. There are so many barriers. There are barriers to the universities because you can't get this degree at every university. Mm -hmm. There are barriers to the work it takes to get through the academic curriculum. I was blessed I didn't have to have a full-time job during college. It would have been hard for me to do that. We then get into the profession. And because, like I said earlier, it is a profession that takes time. It's particularly hard on women mm-hmm. who have to make a very often difficult choice between raising a family and sticking it out in this business, or they have to take a few years off. It's just, there are a lot of barriers. It also, once you become an architect and you go through all the education, you still then have the payments towards NCARB. And if you want to join the AIA, that's another fee. And it's an in- it requires a lot of resources to just maintain your licensure going forward. It does. And the other thing that I think is kind of the challenge with architecture that continues to be a problem that that isn't solved is that 
it does take a village, as you said earlier. And as a result, when clients look at a design or they look at a changing a building that they have or whatever they want to do, they're talking to a team. And that team is just the architecture team. Then you have MEP, then you have mm-hmm. structural, then you have the code consultant. And suddenly, even for something that may seem relatively simple, you actually need the work of 16 people. And as a result, it seems like a large dollar amount for the client. But at the end of the day, that is being split among 16 people. And so there's still this, there's this gap between the value of design and the recognition that's required from clients about what it costs. And as a result, architecture continues to be a profession where, quite frankly, people complain about the pay. Of course, yeah. And it's an industry-wide issue. And I know there's discussions, endless discussions about unionization of, of architects, things like that. And I don't know if that's the solution, but it's something that is continues to be a problem. And, and I'm on sort of the other side of it now. And it's, it is hard when you're looking at the, the bottom line and making these projects pencil. And architecture is a very expensive component of that. Well, I've been on the other side of that conversation with you, Sam, so I know, I know that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, there's been some tough conversations there for sure. Okay, so I want to ask you a couple of questions just to kind of round out the conversation, James. The first one is, what continues to excite you about working as an architect in Los Angeles? The best thing about architecture is it's kind of always different. You can work on several workplace projects. You can work on several adaptive reuse projects. You can work on several hospitals, you name it, whatever. They're all a little different. To me, the voyage of discovery is kind of the excitement. It's also the grind. And like, you know, you do have to kind of get into, you know, you got to get into the excitement. You got to get into the grind. I mean, I will share with you though, every time I go out and pitch for a new project, By the time you get in the room with the client, you've had endless conversations with your team. You've spent hours and hours and hours crafting a story. You've worked on a slide deck. You've rehearsed it. You know, a lot of work goes into this. I love the thrill of the chase. Mm -hmm. I love getting in the room. I love that pitch. The best and the worst day for me is when the phone rings and the client says, congratulations, you got the project. Because my immediate response (laughs) is, wow, that's amazing. I'm really glad. I'm really excited to do this. The second I hang up the phone, it literally, it's like, oh crap, now I got to do this thing. Now I got to do the work. And and because it's, it's less about the work and it's like still, no matter how many things you do, there's this like, do I know how to do this? Do I know how to ask the right questions? Mm-hmm. Are they going to figure out that I'm a phony? And I've even asked my some of my partners who have, you know, more years of experience. And I, I've asked them, I'm like, does that feeling ever go away? The answer I've gotten is I've been doing this for 45 years and I feel exactly the same way. So I think that's like the weird magic and the mystery of this. Mm-hmm. It's like excitement and and terror. And the profession is continues to be humbling as you move forward. Every single day, mm-hmm. every day. <laughs> the The second part of that question was was L.A. and being an architect in Los Angeles. You've lived in New York, as have I. What is it about Los Angeles which is fun in the design profession? What I like about L.A. Well, I love about L.A. I'm born and raised here. This, you know, I'm as much this place as as anything. Everyone wants to act like New York is like 
you can do anything. If you can make it here, you can make it anywhere, right? True. But I also think what's really special about LA is this is a kind of like anything goes kind of place. Mm-hmm. I mean, stereotypically, this is movie magic. This is I can push the boundaries. Any idea can happen, right? People around the world look to this place for like... Inspiration, it, magic. You know, really magic, right? It's stereotypical and like every other place, some of it's real and some of it's not. But I do think clients here tend to be really open. Mm-hmm. I also do think that there is a kind of like West Coast, nothing's going to stop us kind of attitude that I really appreciate because I feel like we solve problems here differently than we mm. solve them in other places. Do you think it's a little bit more optimistic here? I think it's, op- I actually think you're right. It's optimism, mm. right? It's the magic in the making mm-hmm. with optimism for innovation. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying other places aren't innovative or that there isn't magic other places there is, but there is something about here that it's just like, if you can dream it, you can make it happen. Yeah. Yeah. It's the land of make-believe until it's real. And there's... And a lot of it's real, right? Like look around you, like things happen here. Yeah. It does. It does always feel like there's a little bit more freedom of expression here. And I think that is just in innate to LA as a whole. But if you compare it directly to New York, New York is such a pressure cooker. Mm -hmm. And as a result, design, it either flourishes in a big way, or it's just stamped down completely. LA, there's a little bit more middle ground there. And I think there's a little bit more experimentation that happens here, where the bottom line isn't just the end number at the bottom of the spreadsheet. Yeah. Um, which I think was really fun. Well, I just think I love New York. New York is a fantastic place and the energy is incredible. But there's a kind of alchemy here of optimism and sunshine. And, you know, I used to say LA is the kind of place where you look at the past mm-hmm. in the rearview mirror as you're speeding away at 70 miles an hour. And it's kind of, and it's kind of true, right? Like we as architects should have more respect for the past. And that's a little bit what we've been talking about in terms of building repositioning and adaptive reuse and how that's a viable, sustainable business model for the future. A thousand percent double down on that. But the idea that you don't have to be encumbered by the past, the idea that you can look at the past in the rearview mirror as you're Mm -hmm. speeding away it just implies that you're speeding towards something. Mm-hmm. And I always think that's what's really interesting about here. We're always speeding, t- unless you're on the 101 at rush hour, but you're always speeding towards something. I love that visual. Um, yeah, unfortunately, it's mostly stuck in traffic. But, yeah, totally. But I love that visual. So my last question for you, James, is what are your three favorite buildings in Los Angeles? Okay, so this is a tough one. Having grown up here, it's hard. You know, you probably want me to say like three icon, iconographic architecture, whatever. You can say your family house. Yeah. Like, because I think your sense of a place is so tied to lots of other things. I love looking up at the Griffith Observatory Hmm. because I think there are days here, the weather is perfect. It's sunny. It's beautiful. It's clear. There are still days where I drive toward the mountains. And I have this like, holy crap, I live in Los Angeles moment, right? So Griffith feels like that to me. I love Dodger Stadium because it 
just reminds me of a lot of great times as a kid. But like, weirdly, it's this great piece of kind of mid-century architecture. Um, And then the third one. You know, there's this actually... (laughs) There's a great building uh, in West Hollywood, right on the verge of Beverly Hills, and it's a condo building. It's called the Sierra Towers. I've always really liked that building because it's kind of it's perched a little bit higher up on the hill than you think it should be. Okay, and it's this really slim thing, and again, it's this kind of mid-century. So you're you know you're seeing a theme. It looks a little impossible, and yet it's possible. And I love that building because every time I drive by it, I love to stare at it. It's kind of hanging on the side. I worry about it in an earthquake. Fine. You know, maybe one day I'll get in there and reposition that thing too. I don't know. But yeah, uh, that's an interesting one. Sierra Towns. You got to look it up. We'll we'll look it up. Well, James, thank you very much. Been a pleasure talking to you. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did, please consider subscribing to Building LA on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your favorite podcast platform is. As a bonus... If you have a couple of minutes, please consider rating the podcast and writing us a brief review. We'd really appreciate it. And of course, if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to email me at sam at buildinglapodcast.com. Hope you tune in again soon.